With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. You know what? It really pays to understand what is rational behavior. Everyone assumes, oh, I'm the rational one and everyone else is irrational. Well, we're all kind of irrational almost all the time. And there's reasons for that because we, our brain needs shortcuts occasionally to so we could think faster and make decisions. But that means we sacrifice a little bit of rationality and particularly this year where it's like everyone is arguing about everything. There's no teams. Rational thinking means you're an individual and you compile wisdom in your life. You use that wisdom and plus your knowledge, which are different, to make decisions. So I'm really happy to have Steven Pinker, one of my favorite writers, come on the podcast and talk about his new book, Rationality. Here we go. The Better Angels of Our Nature is one of my all-time favorite books, and it's such an important book that people need to read. If I wanted to, I could use that book in an argument at least once a day <laughs> because it's such an important topic. The fact that in general, uh, uh, against what people think commonly, violence as a species has gone down, you know, century over after century. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about your book, Rationality, which I will talk about in the intro. But I love the quote by Jonathan Haidt. Uh, if you ever considered taking drugs <laughs> to make yourself smarter, read Rationality instead. <laughs> yes, that's a quote to die for. Which is very interesting. Now, and you're, and and I'll just summarize, not necessarily the argument of the book, and you could correct me, but you basically argue that we are a rational species, but sometimes we get lazy in our thinking. If I were to summarize it in, in one sentence, and like this past year, as you mentioned, we did all these amazing things. We, we developed vaccines for COVID in a few months, and yet half the country and the other half of the country had all this mindless arguing all day long all the time on all social media that you start to think people are really crazy. Facts don't matter. Rationality doesn't exist. And so I'm really torn. When I began this book, I was really torn on both sides that yes, we're rational because we survived as a species. We got food, we got shelter, we lived, but on the whole, you just look at anybody's Twitter feed and you think, oh my God, people are completely insane and irrational almost all the time. Let's start from there. What do you think? <laughs> Yeah, not almost all the time, but when it comes to certain politicized issues, they are. Particular issues can become badges of identity for political tribes or coalitions. 
Also, there are certain zones in which we, uh, we fall back on our intuitions, our intuitions such as that living things contain some kind of essence that gives them their form and powers, uh, and that makes us receptive to, to homeopathy, to all kinds of quack cures, crystal heal healing power, makes people reject vaccines, which seem like in introducing some uh, adulterant or germ in, into your body. That we, uh, we, we unlearn some of these primitive intuitions if we vest some kind of trust in the scientific establishment, but uh, if people don't vest trust in the scientific establishment, they'll, they'll fall back on these intuitions, or they'll listen to other uh, experts with uh, the same uh, air of confidence, but without the, the goods behind them. So, well, well let, let me ask you this, and this is, this is related to the book, um, but when... It, where's the line where you should be a skeptic versus, okay, this is uh, established science and we must believe it. And, and I think specifically the example, Igor Semmelweis in the, I think it was the 1850s, basically without going into the whole story, just figured out that washing your hands uh, will not convey diseases. And, uh, you know, he discovered germ theory and most people at the time, even scientists and doctors did not believe him. And he ended up for an insane in an insane asylum for a while. So he was rational. Most people were not rational, particularly when confronted with something new. And it seems like that's the way of humans. Well, it's, uh, yeah, we have no, no one has a pipeline to the truth and, uh, we're, uh, our natural state is ignorance about everything. We ideally have institutions that have built in uh, checks and balances and demands for empirical testing so that the institution as a whole will over time uh, kind of wander its way into, into true beliefs and discard the, the false ones. But only to the extent that that community, the community of scientists or journalists or government officials or, or, or anyone, agrees to, agrees to abide by these rules, to say uh, no one can impose their beliefs by force. No one has a pipeline to the truth. No one's an oracle. No one is a, a deity. We're all fallible. We've got to provide the goods. If you believe something, you've got to be able to explain why you believe it. You've got to be able to challenge someone who has a, a claim to the truth and, and, and uh, get that person to show why, why we should believe them. If you've got a system like that, then there's no guarantee that it'll, it'll uh, find the truth, and, and sometimes it won't. But that's our best is our only method for finding the truth. Uh, given that none of us has divine inspiration, none of us could listen to an oracle. That's our only choice. So you define rational as uh, using knowledge to obtain a goal. The knowledge could come from many different sources. It might be incorrect knowledge. We have to just sort of define knowledge. But it's rational to to use the the knowledge that you have. People and you're saying people could be irrational if they're not using this knowledge to do certain things. You know, for instance, I could be, I, I had COVID recently and everyone said, why didn't you get a vaccine? Using their models of vaccine taking, they thought, oh, I must be, you know, a racist if I didn't use a vaccine or I must be some, you know, right wing this or right wing that. But the reality was I was just lazy. I kept scheduling it and skipping the appointment and then I got COVID. <laughs> okay. And no one believed, people would rather believe that there was some devious reason why I didn't get vaccinated. And because I think people think that others are rational, that, that in general people are making big rational decisions, but we're usually not. We're usually 
as, as you say, we're, we're, we're using kind of lazy thinking or lazy tools for, for deciding things. Well, that, it, it's true that a lot of uh, irrationality comes from falling back on, on your, your, your gut feelings, flying by the seat of your pants, um, going for the first response that occurs to you. And, then, uh, and a lot of the demonstrations of uh, ir predictably irrational thinking come from people not being smart enough to, to, to know the correct answer. Where as soon as you explain to them, they say, you know, they slap themselves in the forehead and they said, oh yeah, of course, what was I thinking? Uh, the problem was they weren't thinking and that our gut feelings often lead us into uh, bad conclusions. It's also behind the, the philosophy of governance, sometimes called nudge, uh, pr promoted by uh, my- Richard Thaler. Uh, Richard Thaler and my colleague Cass Sunstein, the idea that uh, people, very often fall back on, they, they just slip into a groove, they, they don't think twice. And so if you set up the environment so that the lazy option happens to be the rational option, you get a, a lot more rationality. But it's, it seems like there are a lot of, there are a lot more reasons, even though you argue correctly, I feel that being rational will improve your life in general. It seems like there are a lot of, there are a lot more reasons to be irrational than to be rational. For instance, the community I live in, might believe something as a community. And so it's easier for me to survive in that community if I just choose to be irrational and believe along with them. And, and this could happen at every level of society. So in general right now, are, how, how rational are we? Like what's your, what's your take? Well, the, the thing is that ra rationality is always a means to an end. And the end, you, you might use your rational faculties to pursue something that you can't really rationally defend. So for example, if it's just to be, to earn brownie points within your, your social clique, uh, then indeed, you, if, if, you're, if the people you hang out with uh, believe a lot of false things, and if they're going to attack you if you speak the truth, then there's a, a limited sense in which it's rational to say things that are false because mm. no one wants to be uh, an outcast. You, we all want to be accepted by our social group. That we can then ask the question, well, is your social group rational? And that's where, where you get to the implicit rules of the game that you follow as a community, what you reward other people for, what you, what you tend to promote. And ideally, since uh, we all want to be accepted, but we also don't want to be deluded. We don't want to believe nonsense. Uh, you know, we really do want to reduce unemployment. We want to reduce COVID. We want to increase um, GDP, we want to increase happiness, we want to increase knowledge. Given that, you know, at the end of the day, it's hard to argue against those things, we can say, well, gee, are the, the kind of rules for who's, who's cool and who's not in your social group likely to lead to more correct beliefs, which is something that at the end of the day, we probably all want. Yeah, and I would say probably most people want to be more rational. And yet, what, what do you, why do you think that particularly we saw this this past year, but I bet you we see this every year and I'm just focusing on this past year, but you know, there's a kind of a cliche now that facts don't matter in arguments. And you point this out in the book that people almost immediately start engaging in, you know, ad hominem arguments or, you know, mistakes in causation versus correlation. And, you know, what, you know, do we really want to be rational people or, Again, why do facts don't matter? Why is that a cliche right now? Well, it's, it's, it, no one would say facts don't matter. They would disagree as to what the facts are. The question is, how do we um, how, how do we make sure that our beliefs are facts and that we don't uh, mistakenly believe things that aren't facts? Right. But right. if I argue with you something where I think it's fact based, and you, you and and you don't know, you might just start with the ad hominem arguments. I'm not saying you specifically, but that seems to be a general 
argument. And I'm not saying me yeah, people, either. Like, I mean, the problem is that people do want to win arguments, and winning arguments doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that you'll end up with the, the correct beliefs. It might be the person who shouts loudest, who uh, is, has the deepest voice, who has the most authoritative tone, uh, who uses dirty tricks of debating, like like uh, attacking the person instead of the argument, or appealing to authority, or appealing to the bandwagon. Those are all ways of appearing to win arguments, but the uh, unless you've got kind of a, a forum in which you say, no, no, wait a sec, just because you're citing someone with a fancy schmancy degree doesn't mean that he's right, or just because a majority of people believe it, that doesn't mean that it's right. You've got to show the goods by you know, what are the verifiable sources, what are the empirical tests. Unless the rules of the game are such that the uh, person who wins the argument is the one who has the best argument, as opposed to the person who's got the, the, you know, the best mansplainer, the, the, the deepest voice, the, the one who shuts everyone up, the one who, who the, the demagogue, then the winner of the argument may not be the one who's correct. So what we ought to do is make it so that our debate forums, our discussions, our op-ed pages, our classroom discussions, our, our everyday barroom discussions uh, are steered toward uh, what really are facts as opposed to who has the loudest voice or, or um, uh, who can attack the other person. But maybe maybe having as a goal winning arguments and then using the knowledge at your disposal, like if I have a louder voice, I'm going to win. These people are engaging in rational behavior. Like you, you started off as an evolutionary psychologist or you are an evolutionary psychologist. And it could be that the one who wins the most arguments rises up in the hierarchy of the tribe back in you know, hunter-gatherer days. Well, so that could to, be rational behavior. You don't even have to look back to hunter-gatherer days. We still have uh, implicit uh, dominance hierarchies. Uh, the thing is that what's rational for a, uh, you know, a, a local goal, a, a short-term goal, like uh, being the, the, the uh, alpha debater in your social circle or, or your, your, your barroom clique, may not be rational if you step back and you say, well, geez, that, is that a rational thing to want? Yeah, you're really good at, at getting it. But at the end of the day, don't we really, wouldn't we prefer that our beliefs are aligned with reality? And you could argue about what our goals should be and where it may be rational to strive for a goal that is itself irrational. So you've got to apply rationality at multiple levels, namely, what are the best means to a particular end? And is that an end that you really want or that you really ought to want? So so what, what's an example where... Uh... Uh, you know, the uh, rationale, you, your goals might be irrational. Well, if the goal is just to, uh, to, to, to win an argument, to shout down the people who disagree with you, that's an, that's a goal that is maybe rational for yourself, but it's irrational if you are, uh, deciding on what ought to count, what ought to be rewarded, what ought to be praised, what ought to be tolerated in a particular social group. So the, the, the social group itself can have goals that differ from the goals of the individuals. Just like in a democracy, the goal is maximum you know, freedom and happiness and, and, and prosperity. Now, there may be individuals who have their own goal being to, to become uh, you know, a dictator, an autocrat, but that's just too bad. That is their goal, but uh, the rest of us can get together and say, we're not going to indulge that goal. You might want it, but uh, we're not going to let you have it to the extent that we can prevent it. So, so it seems like you could be rational at the micro level and it gets more and more macro. So I yeah, could exactly. be like, or and in could, science, for example, there, you know, there, there's intense competition for grants, for tenured positions, for prestige. Um, and in, in, in a narrow sense, it's rational to, to try to, uh, gain fame and glory and, and, and riches and, and prizes. 
for that individual, but it's not rational for everyone else to let that person get away with it. It's rational for everyone else to set up the rules of, of scientific arg arg argumentation so that the person whose theory is right gets the prestige, not just the person who, who tries you know, dirty tricks, who uh, suppresses criticism, who fakes his data. There are all kinds of ways that it might be kind of narrowly rational to attain one goal, namely fame and fortune, but irrational if the system lets people get away with it. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldicher, would you like to apply to be VP of en entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. 
So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use HIMS from now Not on. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs HIMSS. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So in the book, you um, describe rationality and, and you almost start with first principles. Like here's, here's what, you know, logic and critical reasoning is all about. Here are the cognitive biases that we have to fight against. Let's just talk a little bit about cognitive biases for a second. So Daniel Kahneman uh, has described all these almost shortcuts in our thinking that could create irrational behavior. And you give many examples in the book. And Kahneman insists there's no way around these cognitive biases, that humans fundamentally, it's like a primal thing. We, we have these cognitive biases. Where does that fall on the side of humans are basically rational versus irrational? Well, um, Daniel Kahneman, the, the, uh, the, the brilliant psychologist, Nobel Prize winner, uh, it tends to be a, a, something of a pessimist for when it comes to overcoming human biases. He does believe that it's possible because he posits that there are two systems of, of uh, thinking. He calls them, uh, not very colorfully, system one and system two. <laughs> system one is kind of, uh, gut feelings, first responses, instincts. System two is thinking twice, deliberating, pondering. And uh, so he, he, does, he, he, he does argue that system two can't override system one, but it's got its work cut out for it because system one is what comes to us uh, naturally and easily. And there are, you know, I, I think we 
ought, we must be aware of the kinds of biases and shortcuts that, uh, that, that Kahneman and his late collaborator Amos Tversky uh, called to our attention. But there are ways of making people more rational. And we know that people have to be rational uh, at some level because otherwise, uh, you know, unless we think that, that Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky are, are a superior breed of humans, they're just like us. Uh, so they have what we have, and I, you know, we can we can teach people why something is a fallacy, and they nod and they say, "Oh yeah, you're right. That doesn't make any sense." So they've got a rational side that can uh, do that, and there, you know, there, there was some human being who laid down the rules of logic and the laws of probability. So it's not like it's beyond us, and it's not just that there's a tiny fraction of uh, super geniuses, and they're the only ones who can grasp these concepts. You can't explain them. And there are ways of presenting material that are more intuitive and so that the kind of fallacies that people are, uh, that fall into, they can also um, uh, see their way around. You, you, can, you can present problems in a way that, that jibes with the way the human mind works and then we, uh, we don't become so stupid. Give me an example of that. How, how can we present a problem so that we rationally look at it you know, a notorious failure of decision-making comes from um, interpreting the results of, of uh, medical tests, uh, if, uh, or, or for that matter, any other kind of, of iffy information. Like you take a test and there's a certain false positive rate, there's a certain false negative rate. As you take a COVID test and it might say you're free and you might actually have the disease, it might say you have the disease but actually you're healthy. So there are errors in both directions. How do you, given that you've tested positive, how do you assess your own chances? Or a, you know, an X-ray or, or scan for breast cancer or a PSA test for prostate cancer? They're all iffy, and how do you make sense of them as, as we do because we don't have a pipeline to the truth? Well, people are uh, kind of notorious for not taking into account the base rate. That is, if the disease is really, really rare, even if you get a positive result, if the disease is just rare in the population, probably your result is a false positive, just by the, as we say, the law of averages. That's a, a fact that people have, that just doesn't penetrate, even with doctors. Uh, so for example, if they, uh, a disease prevalence is say one-tenth of one percent, and even if the test is pretty sensitive, uh, then if a positive result um, probably means you don't have the disease, or at most, you know, 50-50. Uh, people get it wrong when you present the data as the base rate for the disease is 0.1%, um, uh, the false positive rate is uh, 0.1, the false negative rate, etc. You, you, you give them people those numbers with decimal fractions between 0 and 1, and they, uh, they come to the wrong conclusion. If you convert it now to something much more concrete, you say there are 1,000 people in the population, uh, one of them has breast cancer. Uh, of every uh, 100 people who uh, get a positive test result, um, 10 of them don't have the disease. So you make it really concrete. You talk about actual bodies that people can visualize in their mind's eye. Well, all of a sudden they get the, the uh, answer right. And they, the people who formerly were uh, almost all wrong, suddenly with a switch of format, get it right. It's even better if you present it as a diagram. So. You, the, the, the trick is to take advantage of the, the formats where the, in which the mind naturally processes information. And that is not typically uh, numbers, fractions, decimals. Uh, you know, you have to 
have a lot of experience with them for them to be intuitive. On the other hand, we are visual creatures. We are, we encounter uh, experiences in life. We, we, we take lessons from what happens to us and what doesn't happen to us. And if you present the information in terms of, uh, say, uh, one out of a thousand people instead of uh, 0.1%, then it becomes much more intuitive. So, so in the book, you describe rationality, I think, and again, you build up from very numbers oriented, like here's the actual probability of this event or decision. You explain the rules of logic, cognitive biases, and, and you know, what happens there and, and illusions and so on. And then it gets a little bit more, there's a lot more uncertainty. So when it comes to political issues, ethical issues, economic issues, and so on in general, through all of these, how can we become more rational? And, and like, I'll give an example of the, the logic when you give some puzzles in the, in one of the first few chapters where is it more likely that someone, you know, Anne is a, is a feminist or is it likely that Anne is a feminist and a nurse and people will say feminist and a nurse, even though that's a subset of all the people who are feminists. So it can't be more probable. It's like saying that you're, you have a greater probability of drawing a red queen from a deck of cards than a, uh, than a queen. Uh, yeah, same, same exactly. fallacy. And people make it when the stereotype is vivid enough. If you describe Anne as a, a, you know, a social justice warrior and she marches in Black Lives Matter and uh, she supports Bernie Sanders, then you say, what are the chances that she's a, uh, a, a nurse? What are the chances that she's a feminist nurse? They say it's more likely that she's a feminist nurse. That's the so-called conjunction fallacy. Yeah. Right. So why are people, given that that's so totally irrational, you know, why do people do that? And let's start with there, yeah. and then from there, let's build up and, and figure out how to be more rational. Yeah, so uh, people, this again is a discovery due to Tversky and Kahneman. They call it the representativeness heuristic, but a better way of thinking about it is thinking in stereotypes. Namely, we, uh, she, she fits the stereotype of a uh, feminist, and so feminist bank teller is, is compelling. She doesn't fit the stereotype of a bank teller, and we go with the uh, the stereotypes, not with the frequencies. By the way, this is a another case in which if you present it as a, instead of uh, what is the chances that Anne is a feminist bank teller? And you might think, well, what do you mean what are the chances? Either she is or she isn't. What does it mean? What does it even mean to say there's a 0.3 probability that she's a feminist bank teller? She is what she is. Uh, on the other hand, if you say, well, imagine a hundred women like, like Anne, a hundred women who, who meet the description, uh, how, how many of them are uh, uh, bank tellers? How many of them are feminist bank tellers? Well, now people tend to get the right answer. It's suddenly mm -hmm. they, they're, they're no longer as stupid as they, uh, they, they seemed. And it's another example of how presenting information uh, concretely in ways that we can visualize can sometimes make people a bit more rational than if you give them abstract numbers. Even though it's abstract numbers that we deal with in school, we deal with in, uh, in many professions, but it's just not what we evolved to work with. So, that, so that's the responsibility of the problem asker. So as a problem solver, how can one kind of train their mind and their mind and body to be uh, uh, more rational? Well, uh, part of it is you can uh, convert problems into images, into concrete uh, uh, scenarios, just to, to do that translation yourself if, if the person posing the question wasn't considerate enough to have done it for you in the first place. Uh, but also, you can, uh, you can if you're an educated person, and, and if you're a well-read person, then all of these tools that are not second nature to us, 
that we didn't evolve with, but that our, uh, you know, our, the, the logicians and mathematicians over the centuries have devised, we can learn them the same way we learn to read, which is an unnatural skill. And one of the points of my book, Rationality, is to provide people with the basics of these tools of rationality that, that, that they don't come naturally to us, but that really uh, do help us um, uh, become smarter, to, to, to think better. So it's not so terrible if, uh, in fact, it's, I, I think it would be a good thing if everyone was taught probability in elementary school, if everyone, including the what sounds uh, complicated but isn't, namely uh, Bayes' theorem, so kind of the how do, how do you evaluate uh, beliefs in the light of evidence, uh, some, some game theory, some logic, some uh, probability theory, some statistical decision theory. These are all things that I think a uh, educated person should have at their fingertips and uh, should call on to supplement the rationality that we were born with. Beyond that, even because let's take like um, you know political issues or economic issues or you know life issues. Like let's say, oh, I'm thinking of moving from Illinois to Tennessee. I want to make a rational yeah. decision. You know, what what? How should people go about thinking about everyday problems instead of you know problems where there's a concrete solution? Yeah, I mean the um, stepping way back. I think the one of the, the biggest uh, boons to reason is just is a, a trait. It's almost a personality trait called active open-mindedness. That is, instead of always uh, doubling down, digging in, looking for evidence that supports your 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 beliefs, um, consider the possibility that you're wrong. Listen to the other side. Uh, try to figure out if I was wrong, what, how would I know? How how would the world tell me? Uh, if the facts change, should I change my mind? That whole suite of personality traits can make you more rational. Literally, and we know that because if you give people tests of say, predict the future, what's gonna happen in the next six months, the ones who are open-minded have a way better track record because the people who are close-minded will uh, glom onto a belief and hold it even if they are, even if the world is telling them over and over again, you're wrong. So you gotta start with that, that mindset. Then for uh, particular decisions, you, you give yourself some time. Don't go with your gut feeling, with your first response. I mean, this is hardly new wisdom, but, uh, but although there is a uh, kind of a, a trend, a fad to say, oh, uh, go with your gut, uh, don't overthink things, but probably you're, you're generally better off uh, thinking, at least thinking them through. In the case of risky decisions, having a sense of the, both the probabilities and the outcomes what are the what do I stand to gain or lose if this happens, and what are the chances that this will happen? Weighing those up is uh, that's sometimes called rational choice theory or expected utility, and it's not a guarantee that you'll make the right decision, but it's a it's a good thing to, to try to think through. Like how do we how do we uh, develop let's say adaptive open mindedness? Like that seems like a muscle one has to practice or exercise. It is. It is kind of a. Uh, uh, a bit of wisdom that the sages throughout the uh, eras have, uh, have have advised us. Uh, part of it is just you know be, be a virtuous person and try to, to think that way. But part of it is also uh, you know as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, a lot depends on the on the rules of the uh, uh, of the game of the community that you're part of of, of the clique. Do we humiliate people uh, for being a flip flopper uh, and say ah well that's yesterday you said this and today you say that and or do we reward people for saying, the famous quote attributed to John Maynard Keynes, when the uh, facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? 
Now, probably, by the way, Keynes probably never said it, but <laughs> but someone did. As with most quotes. As with most quotes, yes. But it is a uh, a good rule rule to live by. But that means it doesn't just mean cultivating that virtue in yourself. It means rewarding it in others. Like, hey, good for you. You changed your mind when the facts changed. Not, oh, well, you're a flip flopper. Why should we believe you if you just change your mind? What's something you feel incredibly strong about? Like some common issue. It would be hard to change your mind because you've seen the facts, you've seen the science, and so on. Or, or there's no facts in science. There's, it's just your belief. Well, I'll, you know, I'll give you something that I've, I've certainly staked my my, uh, my my name to. That is that progress is a real phenomenon. That is, if you measure things that are uh, that we we count as good, beneficial, like peace, like knowledge, like uh, prosperity, like uh, happiness, they have increased over the long run. Yeah, I think I think. I mean, and and this was a great example. You had great examples in both Enlightenment Now and The Better Angels of Our Nature. And those, you give certain metrics as showing progress, and then you're able to show how those metrics have increased. Stay tuned for part two, which came out today as well, where we continue our talk about what techniques can you use to actually specifically be more rational? And how do you know how rational you are? Listen to part two.